You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. This is Lawrence Coletti and I'm the host for today's show, which is being recorded on location at the 2015 Annual Bar Convention in the amazing Boca Raton Resort and Club, which of course is in Boca Raton, Florida. We're here to cover this event and its highlights for you, our listeners. And joining me now, I have two special guests. I've been waiting for this event all day and I, I, uh, after our little pregame talk here, I, I, think, I think we're going to have a fantastic interview. First, I want to introduce uh, Professor Don. Donald Jones and Miss uh, Emily Patricia Graham. And so before I go any further with them, I'd like to have you introduce yourselves. And Professor Jones, I'd like to start with you. Where do you work and what do you do? Well, uh, I work at the University of Miami. I'm a professor of law. I teach constitutional law, criminal procedure, and criminal law uh, to JD students at the law school. Okay, and I think in addition to that, you're also an author. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, you know, um, I, I've been off the reservation in a sense. I've, I've written, I know most law professors write about case law. I write social theory. Okay. And so I've written a book about called Fear of a Hip-Hop Planet. All right. America's New Dilemma, available on Amazon. Fear of a Hip-Hop Planet, America's New Dilemma. It's about uh, the problem of race in the 21st century. You know, historically, race was all about black and white. Now it's become more complex. It's no longer as simple as black and white. Culture is in the mix. And so now, if you want to determine who someone is in terms of their social identity, it's not just what their color is, but what are they wearing? So a black child, for example, in an Izod Lacoste shirt and, and uh, cotton dockers and a sweater tied around his neck will probably be accepted in, in, in most communities. But if you put that same child in a hoodie and saggy pants, now they may get, have trouble getting home from a 7-Eleven. So uh, what we think of as race, who's black and who's not, it's become more of a spectrum than simply two points in space. Excellent, excellent. And uh, Emily? Hello, internet space. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm Emily Patricia Graham. I own my own law office. I have offices in Miami Beach and Clearwater. I also practice in Louisiana and California. I do entertainment law. And I represent clients in film, fashion, and music. They're getting into real estate now, too. And I'm ready for this panel. Seems like it's going to be fun. Okay, well, welcome to the show, you two. Um, I wanted to bring you on because you had a very interesting titled seminar, which uh, which uh, called me to reach out to you. It's called Counseling the Provocative Client. What is protected speech under the First Amendment and how to counsel a provocative client? So let's start with the basics here for the benefit of our listeners. Um, Also, I do want to mention before we get started, this was presented by the Entertainment Arts and Sports Law section of the Florida Bar. We have to do that. We have to give credit where credit's due. But uh, let's get back to the basics. What is a provocative client? A client is provocative, period. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But some clients are more provocative than others. And um, a provocative client in in entertainment is one who doesn't care what anyone thinks, one who wants to say, do what they want, one who wants to dress how they want, um, hang out with who they want, and and produce content, um, film, fashion, or music, um, dance to art that might offend people, that might make some people fearful, that might make people feel some unpleasant feelings or some feelings they don't want to feel. And that client is still going to produce that art. Okay. Well, it seems to me that historically we had lots of protection for people who are provocative 
because the First Amendment created a shield around those who said offensive things. Uh, you know, the idea was I may disagree with what you say, but I will defend to your death your right to say it. With a lot of prosecutors in different states who don't believe that when it comes to hip hop. So there have been gangster rap artists who've been prosecuted for nothing more than the lyrics of their songs. And in the 1990s, we had the issue of, what is it, uh, Luke Skywalker. Uh, but today, uh, just a few months ago, there was a guy named Tiny Do who was, in, who was indicted as promoting gang violence purely on the basis of the lyrics in his songs. So his version of being provocative cost him uh, an arrest, and he was held on a million dollars bond. Okay, so my, my first question for both of you, and because it's in the title of the seminar, First Amendment. And so, uh, Emily, you represent provocative clients, and, and they push the boundaries of the First Amendment. And so what I wanted to ask both of you, just in, in your own words, you know, where do you draw that line? That the First Amendment's not an unfettered right to say whatever you want, whenever you want. There are some limitations to it, but I want to I talk about this in the confines of a provocative client. Where is that line drawn? At? Emily, I want to start with you, and then, and then Professor Jones. Well, a provocative client... It, it depends really, are, are you a litigator or a transactional attorney at first? Um, because if you're making the deals, um, if you're there at, at the time of the content creation or distribution, you have a chance to prevent a possible problem. But the questions that you ask yourself as a practitioner are different than the questions that a litigator would ask because you don't want to place restraints on a client. You don't want to be accused of, of being against the First Amendment yourself. Um, just because you have the degree, just because you wear a suit now and then, it doesn't mean that you have the right to tell someone not to say something. Um, and a lot of times producing the content is, you know, it's good just to have it there and, and then you'll let the marketplace deal with it. You'll see what happens. But there are a lot of professional concerns. Do you, do you let the client throw a lot of money at a project where you don't think it'll ever see the light of day? Do you let a client spend a lot of time, um, especially with entertainment clients who are starting out, they get off of their hourly job, they come over in the studio late all night long. They, you know, I had a client who missed work, got fired from a job because he was up in the studio late at night. And what he produced, it was brilliant. But what if he produced something that could never see the light of day and no one could tell him otherwise? That's, that's the kind of questions you have to ask yourself as, as a practitioner. What are my clients doing? And it's more of a practical question than a First Amendment. But then you start thinking to yourself, okay, so what are the First Amendment and marketplace issues that could put the bosh on my client's career? I mean, it, we're not talking only, you know, one or two songs. It, it could be a whole career. And, you know, like Professor Jones says, you, you do one thing wrong and then you're not marketable. You, you get on Facebook, people start talking about you. I mean, no one wants, no one wants to hear you anymore. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's really a, a holistic thing first. But, but getting to the First Amendment, you know, you have to think, okay, is this a threat? Is this a threat against a specific person? Are they really going to carry out this threat imminently? That's the Brandenburg test. Or is, is this, well, threats are different from Brandenburg, but Brandenburg is inciting unlawful action. Um, but a threat is more for a, a particular person. And Brandenburg is, you know, if you're inciting against a group of people, um, you're inciting, I don't know, some kind of violent takedown somewhere next Tuesday, <laughs> you know. But other than that, other than violence, there's threats, there's insults, there's um, obscenity, which in, 
in some ways isn't protected. And there's defamation, which isn't protected. Um, but there are different classifications of that. And, and then there's just, there's stuff that's, that's really stupid to say. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'll, I'll let Professor Jones take it from there. Well, you see, I think that the, the terrain in which we walk is in a constant state of evolution. So there was a time when I think all you had to worry about <clears throat> was, uh, did you defame someone? Uh, did you say specifically that I'm going to hurt this person and so forth? And, and those were issues that artists with lyrics didn't have to worry about. Johnny Cash could write, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. He never worried about getting prosecuted for that. Um, you know, so, uh, but we're now at a time where the problem is not so much the speech, but the fear that people associate with the speech. We have a, live in a culture of fear in the society, a fear of crime, but particularly of black crime. And we associate uh, this black crime with people who wear hoodies and gold teeth. There's a guy, there's a guy named Mark Cuban who says, if I see a guy in a, in a, in a hoodie and, uh, and gold teeth, I'm walking across the street. And that fear is very real. And so the prosecutor in this case is relying on this fear and this stigma to prosecute a person even though they know they have no facts to prosecute them. The prosecution isn't, the prosecution isn't based on the facts. It's based on the fact this person has been stigmatized, racialized, and criminalized through millions of TV ads, and we're going to prosecute them relying on this prejudice. Uh, this is no different from the kind of thing that was done with Sacco and Vanzetti. Uh, and so this is a new world in which people are being prosecuted not because they did anything wrong, but prosecuted because of who they are and, and the extent to which their lyrics represent an identity which society has, in fact, we've criminalized certain groups of people. And in, in our minds, they are already criminals before they do anything. And that's what's being operative in this case. Well, that's an interesting, interesting perspective. And so uh, during, during your seminar, you, know, you talked about this issue, I'm sure, correct? Right. And then you also talked about uh, what were some of the other, uh, other topics that came under fire. Now, one comes art. You know, you, you hear a lot. And I'm not going to give the, uh, just because we're, we're a uh, professional radio show, uh, I, I don't want to give the entire title of this one art, but there was a piece of art that was uh, under assault for, for a crossing the line, and the last name of it was Christ. And it had, I know that one. Yes, and I don't want, uh, yes, I don't want to repeat. That's Maplethorpe. Maple, okay, great. And it was called P-I, I won't spell out the rest. Right. No, thank you. Thank right. you. Just to keep it, just to keep it family friendly. But, uh, you know, that came under fire as well. And so I would imagine there's some other aspects that come under fire. And so this is really interesting to me because, you know, the, you're right. You know, First Amendment protects us. It's like, I don't necessarily want to hear everything that everybody wants to say, but I protect your right to say it. And it, it did it, at one time. And it's true. We've become more sensitive. And so it, you're calling it there's a, there's a fear of a, of a certain population yes. that's played a part of it. Is there more to it than that? I mean, I, I see a 24-hour news cycle that mm -hmm. repeats these things and just drives the message home. And you see things like the, the Well, but see, the this is worse. It's, it's much worse than I'm saying. I think what we've done in society, what, what the Nazis did, was they created scapegoats. And so there were real problems, but instead of focusing on those problems, they wanted to make scapegoats out of certain groups of people. So we have real problems in inner city. The violence is real. The murder is real. Uh, the danger is real. But th that danger largely comes from the fact that there are social conditions which are driving those problems. There are substandard schools. 
People don't have houses. People don't have hope. People don't have jobs. People face discrimination. People are sometimes in a city arrested and beaten for no reason at all. And so those problems are what we call structural racism. Now, what a group of conservatives have done Instead of focusing on those problems, they say, well, the problem isn't any isn't discrimination. The problem isn't the school. The problem is you've got these gangsters who are dangerous and criminals. They're the ones who's causing all the problems. So let's go beat them up or arrest them, and we'll solve the problem. We've made a scapegoat out of certain populations. And we've not really scapegoated people, the ones who wear saggy pants, we scapegoated the music. There was one point at which there was a guy, a guy who had gotten killed. He was 15 years old. He was killed by a guy, and they wanted to know why was he killed. And this has to do with those social conditions, the jobs, the lack of hope, the internalization of despair. But so the reason we got killed was because it's the music they listen to. So it's hip-hop music which causes death, you see. And so that's what's going on. You have what I call a scapegoating narrative. What they've done is they've, they've mobilized these narratives and they use these narratives in place of evidence. Interesting. So in a way, there's a, a social situation going on. There, there's activities real going problems. on. And the real problems somehow get, I guess they get generated into a threat through Through a threat narrative. They, they, so the, but the music, hip-hop music is really about is people who are poor trying to use what they have to create visibility for themselves. The poor in the urban areas are invisible, except and unless they can create a platform. That's what hip hop does, it creates a platform. These people have picked up the mic instead of a gun. This is their means of earning a living. This is their means of empowering themselves. And what they're trying to do is send a message about how bad the conditions are. They're using music the same way we use film. They're creating characters, they're creating stories. The same way a movie director will create a story about gangsters, uh, but no one prosecutes Al Pacino for playing a gangster. That's an interesting point. Uh, but they, they prosecute gangster rappers for portraying those same kinds of characters in their lyrics. Very interesting point. One thing to highlight this, I think, is the contrast between two festivals that take place down here in Miami. Yes. The, the Ultra Music Festival. Right. And Urban Weekend, Memorial Day yeah. Weekend. Now... Uh, I have a perspective on Ultra because I, I love techno music and that's why I, I got into um, entertainment law and law in the first place. And I remember back in high school, I used to wear very baggy jeans. I, I still wear hoodies. <laughs> and, you know, I, I would dress, you know, baggier than hip hop because that was the style back then. And I was accosted once or twice by cops when I had blue hair. When I, when I looked a certain way, they thought that I had drugs on me, wow. which I didn't. But the, the techno scene was, we were targeted for that. Once I was actually pulled over by a cop, he could see how I looked, how my friends looked in the car, and he pulled us over. We didn't do anything. We think it was a pretext. You were profiled. This, yeah. The scary thing is that knowing what I know now, back then, no one told me that I didn't have to consent to a search of my car. And he searched my car and... The Lord was smiling on me that day because not that there was anything in the car, but you never know in Miami, you never know what happens, you know. And, and so I have a feeling about what it is like to be profiled. Uh, and now when I see what happens with the Ultra Music Festival, and I love Ultra, getting, you know, there were even people trying to shut down Ultra last year because of something that happened that was really a security issue. It, it wasn't a festival per se issue, but I believe they fixed it this year. 
But a lot of the things they let happen in Ultra, a lot of the things they let slide that they do not let slide in Urban Beach Weekend because of the nature of, of the kind of music, the, because it's, Urban Beach is, is a black festival. Ultra music is it's really rainbow, and, and that's what's beautiful about it. Um, but Ultra, the, the cops prepare for it. They have checkpoints. You military know. style. Oh, yeah, military. And it's, I mean, there were some high-profile killings in the past couple of years in the news regarding Urban Beach. And, and one thing I'd like to mention is, is that the, the local um, Greater Miami chapter of the ACLU sends people to patrol on Urban Beach weekend and to hand out flyers, Know Your Rights flyers. Wow. That's interesting. Wow. So I want to I take the discussion into, we, we talked a little bit about, uh, before the interview about Sony and the interview. I mean, this is right in the wheelhouse of the First Amendment. And, and, and I like the, the interesting points you brought up about corporations now restricting what is free speech. Mm. And so I guess it's a different definition. It's applied and the enforcement's applied differently, but I wanted to get, I wanted to kind of get back into that discussion. So who would like to volunteer and tell uh, our audience a little bit about the Sony case with, uh, with the interview? Well, not the case, but the, uh, the, the situation. The Sony hacking is (laughs) that, that was an issue. I, I know some people that, that got their emails actually hacked and thank God I'm not in any of it. (laughs) <laughs> in, in any of those emails. But the thing is that Sony, um, they were hacked. We don't know who hacked them. We don't know. We think it was another country. We're not sure. But there were some threats attached to that hacking incident. And because of that, theaters pulled the movie. They're like, we're not showing this movie. Now, this is very close to, you know, a high-profile shooting that happened in a theater after Batman. Oh, the Aurora shooting. Yeah, and, and there were, you know, shootings regarding um, cartoons and, and everything, even before Charlie Hebdo. And so the theaters didn't want that liability. Their businesses, they have liability insurance on their people. They didn't want to be involved. Was it a First Amendment issue when, when Sony pulled the movie, when the interview was not distributed because of that? It's questionable. I mean, it's a business issue. I think a lot of people didn't want Sony to pull the movie and it eventually was distributed. Even President Obama came out and said, look, don't be afraid of the First Amendment. Distribute this movie, you know. So I think that was a win for the First Amendment, but it highlighted another issue. It it highlighted the issue of what happens in the marketplace and um, what is smart for a client to put out. Was it smart for them to put out the interview? Well, yeah, they're making some money on it on Netflix and even people who didn't get to see in the theater. So was there really an effect? Sure, there was. I mean, they lost millions of dollars in the theater, but they still did it. And, and that's the thing. When you have a provocative client, they're going to do what they do no matter what. And sometimes as an attorney, you have to do damage control. Well, what I would say is, is that our democracy depends on our ability to communicate with each other, to express what we feel freely. And what I think you see historically, the thing that has not changed, is that fear threatens our ability to communicate. Now, historically, that fear was expressed through the government. What Joe McCarthy did, he, he got people frightened to death about communists, and that, that gave him carte blanche 
to abridge the rights of people to associate and so forth. We blacklisted people. We threatened people. We took away their jobs if they associated with this thing we were afraid of. And so our idea of what threatened speech is, well, the government threatened speech. But what really threatened speech is fear threatened speech. So when a majority of people become afraid of something, then people have difficulty speaking. So what you see in the interview is not the government suppressing speech, but when this like fear spreading like a virus through the social media and it illustrates the danger of the social media, then the social media itself, the, what we call it the markets, really social media, can shut down communication. Now it's really frightening uh, because many times the source of the fear is not rational. And so what I would argue, and what I argue in my book, Fear of a Hip Hop Planet, is that we are, have become terribly afraid of hip hop, but hip hop is part of the solution, not part of the problem. It's a message about something that needs to be changed. And what people do when they're afraid of hip hop is they tend to shoot the messenger instead of listening to the message. And I think that's what the prosecutor did in the case I was talking about. Uh, you know, she was basically trying to destroy and, and stigmatize and assassinate the character of, of someone who is actually simply trying to tell you the stories of what of the wrong, the social injustice going on in his community. And so the, 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 the thing that's in common is it shows how this social media can operate in ways which have no, has no more rationality than a storm. Emily, uh, we were talking before the interview about uh, the creative process. And so you have clients, these provocative clients that want to produce a, a work of art and or, or a a recording art and they've got kind of a non-conventional process to doing it and and we at legal talk network do have our own little creative processes i don't think they're so provocative because we are we are legal talk network but uh, but so i certainly appreciate i was kind of getting the giggles when you were when, when you were talking about that but she talked about i don't want to get in the way of the creative process however I don't want my client to make a bad investment. So it's a bad investment of their time and produce a work that just cannot see the light of day. So get, describe that experience for us and, and tell us a little bit about representing that provocative client. Well, you know, it's funny because every experience is different. Every attorney is different. Um, every client's different. A lot of entertainment lawyers play instruments. I know a lot of members of, of Easel, the Entertainment Arts and Sports Law section, play the guitar, play the piano, play something, sing. So a lot of us do jam with our clients. It's not, you know, uncommon for us to be up in the studio with a client. And if you're that kind of attorney, you have a certain power because you're up in there and a lot of times you shouldn't use it. Because professionally, you shouldn't get in the way of, of art creation. It's, you're not the artist. They're paying you not to tell them what they can create. They're paying you to help them, you know, help them negotiate the deal, help bring people together, help, you know, make their career. And so I think, you know, my advice is confined to really business advice. I, you know, if I think it gets too crazy on what they're saying, it will be because I don't think it'll ever see the light of day. It'll be because, look, like, this is not radio ready ever. Like, your hook, it's funny. It's crazy. I know you don't mean it, <laughs> but it, it, you're never going to get this on radio. You can't perform this in the club, you know. So, um, I mean, there are copyright First Amendment issues, too. That's less provocative and, and more purely creative with, with certain aspects of music. I'm thinking about a, a certain kind of music out in New Orleans. 
But, um, you know, a, a lot of attorneys that, that don't go up in the studio, attorneys that maybe are litigation attorneys or uh, attorneys that don't have that same experience, they come at it differently. They, they see the final product first. And for an attorney that sees the final product first, their question is, okay, is this okay for me to put my name to it as the attorney representing them? Because attorneys can choose not to represent a client if they think that something is morally bad. That very rarely happens because attorneys are, are very, they're very rational and, and they're generally very open-minded about their job. But, you know, sometimes an attorney won't want to be associated with a product, but that doesn't really happen too much in the arts. You know, so, so they'll, they'll help promote that. Um, really, it's, it's more of a business decision for us. Now, for litigation, that's different. And, and then you deal with clients who they've gotten into some trouble and, and they're still fighting. And those might be more difficult situations. Um, I'm not that kind of attorney. I, I stay out of that. <laughs> well, it looks like we've reached the end of our time for our program today, but I want to thank our guests. It's been a very intellectual conversation about the First Amendment, about uh, provocative clients, and I know we're closing out. I know you guys want to get to the reception, so I appreciate your time. So I, wa- I did want to leave our listeners with some contact information if they want to reach out to you, learn a little bit more, yeah. uh, and especially about your book, right. uh, Professor Jones, and uh, and about your work, Emily, uh, with, with clients. Uh, how can they get a hold of you? And you know what? I think I'm going to start with Professor Jones on the way well, out. Well, first one, say that the, the book Fear of a Hip Hop Planet, America's New Dilemma, is really written for anyone who's interested in understanding the social significance and the social context out of which hip hop grows. And I think if you read my book, if you love it, you'll love it more. If you if you didn't like hip hop, I think it'll give you an, another way to think about it. You'll probably end up appreciating how important it is. It's a witness about social conditions in the city. But the book is called Fear of a Hip Hop Planet, America's New Dilemma. Published in 2013, it's available on Amazon. You can reach me at djones at law.miami.edu. And Emily? You can reach me at my email address, E for Emily, G-R-A-H-A-M 505 at AOL.com. The 505 is for the MC 505. It's a beatbox that I used to use when I, I made techno. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you know, call me, ask me questions. Um, I enjoy talking about it. If you want to go up in the studio, that too. Well, this has been another edition of Special Reports. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.